Christ empowered, resurrected, as we will be when he comes. Good morning, ladies. Good morning, ladies. <laughs> there we go. We're excited about Hebrews. Yeah. It is so wonderful to be here with you today. Please open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 2. As you tend there, I would like for you to consider the medical field for a moment. I think it is safe to say that the medical field saves lives. Possibly one of the greatest medical achievements came in 1928 when Alexander Fleming revolutionized the war against deadly bacteria when he discovered penicillin. Over the course of history, discovery of things like anesthesia and x-rays and cardiac defibrillators and other advances has saved countless lives. My sister is an emergency room doctor, and I have tremendous admiration for her work. I asked her what her job was exactly. Her response was simple, to resuscitate and stabilize patients. In other words, to prolong this earthly life. The problem, however, is that the death rate is 100% for mankind. And our earthly life cannot be prolonged permanently because of sin whose wages is death. What we humans need is a greater savior to save us from the problem of sin and death. I am happy to tell you that in our text today, we have that greater savior. The man Jesus who eradicates sin and death for those who believe in him. You will remember that the writer of Hebrews has been demonstrating that Christ is greater than angels to Jews who were being persecuted and were in danger of falling away from the faith. Hebrews chapter 1 showcased several proofs of the superiority of Christ over angels. In chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, we saw the writer suspend his line of argument about the superiority of Christ over angels to emphasize the first warning of the book. The warning was severe, and it was, do not drift away from the faith because you will receive just retribution. Hebrews 2, 5 to 18, now we will see the writer now address his reader's unspoken objection to Jesus' superiority over angels. The writer expects that these Jewish converts that he is writing to will oppose Christ's superiority over angels on the grounds that Jesus had a mortal human nature unlike the immortal angels. The readers were bound to wrestle with questions like, does it even make sense for us Hebrews 
to abandon our rituals, our sacrifices, our customs, and our acceptance in Judaism to worship someone as low as men. Why should we worship another Jew, a man who died on a shameful cross? And furthermore, why did the Son of God become the Son of Man? Why the incarnation? Why would God become flesh which is inferior to angels? These are all, of course, legitimate questions. I must also ask you as well. How do you answer these objections to the worship of Jesus? What is your reason for believing or worshiping the man Jesus, a man who was crucified on a humiliating cross? Where is the reasoning and foundation of worshiping the man Jesus? And how strong is your argument? While arguing from the Old Testament scripture, the writer now meticulously answers these questions and shows why the Son of God had to become man. And why the incarnation doesn't make him inferior, but far more superior than angels and exalts him as the ultimate man, the heir of all things. We will look at the text in four ways. We will see Jesus' preeminence through suffering, his procurement of sons, his power over Satan, and his priesthood in service. Let's begin with Jesus' preeminence through suffering in verses 5 to 9. The text reads, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The text begins with the word for, which is a conjunction that is pulling together the thought before. The thought that the writer is pulling together is actually in chapter 1, verse 14, where we read, Are they, speaking of angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So in a spectacular way, the writer now shows that angels who are immortal and ever in the presence of God do not actually inherit salvation. In fact, he says in chapter 2, verse 5, God has not put the world to come in subjection to angels. The world in the original language means the inhabited earth. This is referring to the future millennial kingdom when Christ will return to rule the world as king from his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Revelation 20 helps us even further because it shows us who will reign in this 1,000-year period. Verse 4 of Revelation 20 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. 
and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So to prove his claim that angels do not rule the world to come, the writer uses these peculiar words in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. Now, it is not that the writer does not know where this text is written or that David is the psalmist. Rather, in the same way that the writer did not identify himself as the author of Hebrews and ascribed all glory to God, he disregards the human authorship of David and points to the Holy Spirit as the author of Psalm 8. Psalm 8, as you may know, is a celebration of the majesty and glory of God. It is also a psalm of incomprehensible tension. God is high and lifted up and wondrous in all his ways. And man is a mortal, lower than the more powerful, more swift and immortal angels who are always before the presence of God. But God has crowned man, that is mankind, not to be confused with Jesus, the man. God has crowned mankind with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. God lavished upon man the gift of dominion over all the works of his hands. God gives the gift of dominion to man who, according to Job 25, 6, is a worm. In holy wonder, man appears to David to be of no consequence in the infinite grandeur of the universe. And it is important to notice that the term son of man used in this text is not a Christological title referring to Jesus. It actually just simply means human being. The title Son of Man, as you may know, refers to the person of Jesus, a heavenly person or deity who descends to the world to become a heavenly judge according to Daniel chapter 7. Psalm 8 in its context is not referring to Jesus, the Son of Man. But having said that, the term Son of Man in Psalm 8 in reference to the fallen nature of mankind, with the exception of Jesus, does invoke the fallenness and the wickedness and the hopelessness of men in our minds. Psalm 8 is saying, although man is frail, his destiny is grand. Man is destined to rule over creation in glory and in honor. But the question, what is man that you care for him, does actually demand an answer. And we need to know that answer. There is one reason why God cares for man. And that reason surely is love. God loves us, and this is part of that our so great a salvation that we saw in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. 
And it is here that we realize we are in the middle of a grand story of love, and we need to press the replay button and go back to the beginning of this wondrous story. In fact, the text itself is actually forcing us to go back to Genesis where it all began because both Hebrews and Psalm 8 are pulling on the same thread of God's mandate to Adam to rule over creation. So we have to see how it started, how it's going, and where we are headed. So how it started, or paradise gifted or gained. Man was indeed the pinnacle of God's creation. He was God's magnus opus for my artist friends. In fact, there is an anthropological focal point in creation. More words are dedicated to the creation of man on the sixth day than any of the other days. There is care, there is focus, there is communion within the Godhead in the creation of men unlike any of the other days. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Friends, man is royalty. Man is the king of the earth. He is of the highest rank. Man is also unique. He is created in the image and in the likeness of God. Man is God's representative and he has dominion over all creation. So that is how it started. That is how paradise was gained. Now let us look at how it's going. Oh, paradise lost. When man was created, he was created with the danger of death if he disobeyed God's word. As we know, Adam fell in a spectacular manner into that danger when Satan seduced him in the garden to eat of the forbidden fruit. Adam, in that catastrophic moment, abdicated his role over creation, and he handed over the scepter of dominion to Satan. And that is how paradise was lost. Look at Hebrews 2.8. It says, as present... At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Why? Because when sin intervened, it brought pain, it brought futility, frustration, and death. And man is not ruling, but he is being ruled by creation. I know I don't have to convince you that man is always fighting something. He's always fighting war, starvation, Disease, broken relationships, trouble in marriages, natural disasters, and all kinds of affliction. 
What is worse is that man is actually confused about his role, that he is even fighting his own identity as male and female, which is creation 101. He is becoming more passive with each day. Man is a victim of everything and anything. Just turn on the news. There are no shortages of victims in our society. Man is ruled by entertainment, by social media, by updates and notifications on phones, by money, alcohol, pornography, drugs, you name it, and man is subjected to it. The reality is, after the fall, our world is punctuated with the wreckage of destruction and death. But paradise is not completely lost. Let us see where we are going with paradise regained. Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Mankind has lost dominion over creation, but there is one man who is preeminent over all. One man who stands in solitary grandeur, head and shoulders above the rest. We see one man who has in fact retained glory and honor. We see one man who has not fallen like the rest of us. One man who is preeminent because of his suffering of his own death. This man is marked out. And this man is identified as the man Jesus. Now, this is the first appearance of the name Jesus in the book of Hebrews. The name Jesus is purposefully used here because that is the name of our Savior. He is named Jesus because according to Matthew 1.21, he will save men from their sin. The name Jesus itself in Hebrews means the Lord is salvation. And how wonderful, how sweet, and how precious is that name to us. We see him with understanding. We see him with belief because he participated fully in mankind's suffering to the point of death. And those who belong to him will also participate in his victory. This man is crowned because he paved the way for your salvation. In Revelation 5, when a search is made for someone to open the scroll of the title deed off the earth and no one is found worthy to do so, John the Apostle begins to weep loudly. And then he hears these glorious words, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That lion, that root of David, is our Savior, Jesus. 
what we lost in the fall, Christ recovered for us. We see Jesus, who for a little while, precisely 33 years, was made lower than the angels. For a little while, the immortal Son of God seemed inferior to angels because he became the mortal Son of Man, capable of suffering and death. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself, and it is mentioned over 81 times across the Gospels. When Jesus says son of man, referring to himself, he is referring to himself as that divine person who descended from heaven and became human. So he says in Luke 9.44, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And in Mark 8.31 The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Observe that also in Hebrews 2.9, we see the first explicit reference to Christ's death in the book. This placement here is intended to stress a point. The crown was just not handed over to Jesus. Jesus' preeminence over mankind is because of his suffering through death. Before the crown, there was the cross. Before the glory, there was Golgotha. Before the honor, there was humiliation. So it says, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now the word everyone here presents a theological challenge because if Jesus died for everyone, why is not everyone saved? Everyone here means without partiality and without distinction, male or female, Jew or Gentile rich or poor. In other words, his death was sufficient for everyone without distinction, but only efficient for some, for those who put their faith in him. It is efficient only for the sons of God, we see in verse 10. It is only efficient for the children given to Jesus in verse 13 and to Abraham's offspring in verse 16. Jesus tasted death by fully and physically experiencing the harsh and violent death on the cross. The cross was the cruelest and most pitiless way of dying in the ancient world. And this happened by the grace of God, by the unmerited favor of God. So where are we going? Those who belong to God... Those who belong to Jesus have a one-way ticket to glory and honor. In our day, we can say the GPS is set and it cannot be rerouted. Because as we learned in our overview of Hebrews, we have a man in heaven. We have a man in heaven who has paved the way for your salvation. 
friend, be assured that nothing was beneath the grace of God to rescue you from your sin. Jesus is the crowned king and he demands your allegiance because the time will come when those who do not waver, those who do not fall away, will enter into a glory greater than the angels just like he did. So we have seen Jesus' preeminence through suffering. We will now see Jesus' procurement of sons in verse 10 to 13. Verse 10, read with me. For it was fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, shall make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In this section, the writer progresses his argument for the superiority of Christ over angels by saying it was fitting. It was entirely appropriate, it was proper, it was necessary in the perfect accord with the nature of God, of God's plan, of God's divine wisdom, that Christ should be made perfect through suffering in order to bring many sons to glory. Now, this would have been a very astounding claim in the Greco-Roman world, that a divine being should suffer was scandalous and inappropriate to even fathom. To the Jew, death by crucifixion meant that a man was under a curse from God. But God found it fitting. In fact, Genesis 3.15 makes it clear that only a man can save mankind. There we read, he, a man, shall bruise the serpent and the devil, or the devil's head, and the devil shall bruise his heel. And even further, Peter says, it was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that this man, Jesus, the Son of God, should suffer through death in Acts 2:23. So God the Father, in whom and by whom all things exist, predetermined the incarnation and suffering of Christ in eternity past. The phrase in bringing many sons to glory now precisely and specifically identifies who Jesus died for. He tasted death for sons, meaning those who put their faith in Jesus. Here we have the vision of the author of our salvation leading and carrying saints on the path to glory. Just as Moses led the children of Israel in Exodus towards the promised land. We are not just saved, but we are brought into Christ's own glory. In verse 10, Jesus is called the founder or your version may say, captain or author of salvation. That term was commonly used for a pioneer or someone who blazed the trail for others to follow. Jesus is the trailblazer for salvation. Now we know from places like Hebrews 4.15 that Christ was in fact without sin. There was no moral imperfection in Jesus. It is important for us to understand that. 
The text says Jesus was made perfect through suffering, meaning Jesus fulfilled God's prerequisite of obedience in suffering through death without sinning, without missing the mark of God's righteous standard. This then qualified him vocationally to be exalted. To be made perfect through suffering could be likened to a state-of-the-art structure or building that is tested for durability by things like thermal stress, air pressure, chemicals, weathering elements, and is proven perfect because it remains standing. Now, if Jesus had been unable or unwilling to die in our place, He would be the perfect God-man, but an imperfect Savior. Jesus had to pass the test of man by true obedience to God the Father, and suffering was a consummation of his human experience to qualify him as the author of our salvation. Hebrews 5, 8 to 9 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Friend, Jesus is the true man who paved the way for your salvation. Think of it this way. The first man that goes through the door in a SWAT team operation is the most vulnerable. Jesus is that first man. Knowingly and willingly, he was made perfect through suffering and took the bullet for us in the form of God's full wrath on our behalf. And because of that, he is the author of your salvation. Verse 11 and 12 say, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is saying, Jesus, the ever obedient son, also sets us apart unto holiness from sin through his life. Hebrews 9.13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus cleanses us from sin and sanctifies us, meaning he separates us from the world unto righteousness. Jesus, as we learned last week from Anne, is God's son by eternal generation, but we are God's children by the new birth which God bestowed upon us through Christ. And because of the common source, being God the Father, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus, who knows every thought and intention of the heart, every evil deed conceived in the mind, every transgression we commit, is not ashamed because he imparted his righteousness 
to us, his own holiness to us, and we belong to him. Now we remember that the recipients of Hebrews were facing harsh persecution and ridicule for believing in Jesus. How comforting it was for them to hear that their Savior, who set them apart, who sanctified them, was not ashamed of them. The three citations we see in verse 12 to 13 further emphasize Jesus' solidarity with his siblings. The first citation in verse 12 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, and I will sing your praise. And this is from the Messianic Psalm 22. These words are Jesus' victorious proclamation after his resurrection that he announces to his brothers, the congregation, the church. This exhibits his solidarity with his siblings as he praises God for his work. The second citation that he says, I will put my trust in him, is from Isaiah chapter 18, verse 17. So here, just as Isaiah was rejected by his contemporaries, but sealed up his messages as a testimony of his trust in God, Jesus put his trust in God to rescue him from suffering and the peril of death. Jesus' trust reached a climax on the cross in Luke 23, 46, in his final words of dependence when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the third citation we have here in verse 13, Behold, I and the children God has given me, is also from Isaiah chapter 18. But in verse 18, this one speaks of how the two sons that God had given him were a testimony of the ongoing presence of God. The exalted Christ also speaks of the children God has given him by virtue of their shared humanity. These verses all show Jesus' solidarity with the sons that he procured and brought to glory as the captain of their salvation. Recently, I heard Oprah say she has the assurance of Invictus. Invictus means unconquered in Latin. When she said this, she was particularly reciting the 19th century poem called Invictus, and she said, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. All I could say was, oh, really? (laughs) Friend, do not be fooled. Either Jesus is the captain of your soul or the devil is the captain of your life. You are either on the path of death paved by the devil or the path of life paved by Jesus, our great Savior. You're either a son of God, as this text is telling us, or you're a son of the devil. Ephesians 2 tells us very clearly that they are sons of disobedience who followed the power of the prince of the air, and that is Satan. So what do we take away from Jesus procuring us as sons? 
two things. First, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We should not be afraid to confess him as our Savior. Second, Jesus had, Jesus had complete trust and confidence in God and was fully vindicated. So we also should be assured that our trust in God in our trials will not be in vain. So we have seen Jesus' preeminence through suffering and his procurement of sons. Now we'll see Jesus' power over Satan in verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. The writer now shows further argument for the superiority of Christ over angels, because in the incarnation, Christ of Christ, Jesus was able to destroy the power of Satan, that fallen angel. Since the children seen in verse 13 share in flesh and blood, meaning human, Jesus took hold of the same human nature. Philippians 2, 6 to 8 tells us that though Christ was in the form of God, he took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. What this means is that Jesus added human nature to his divine nature and became the perfect God-man. He was God fully 100% and fully man 100%. Nothing was separated, was taken away from his divine nature. He added human nature. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus did this so that through death he might destroy the power of death that is the devil. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now... We know that only God gives life and death. We know that from Psalm 139 and other passages. Satan does not possess the control over death inherently, but he gained control by leading Adam into rebellion. He has the power of death in the sense that the only lethal weapon that he has in his artillery is our sin which demands death, and he loves and uses death to terrorize and hold man in lifelong slavery and fear of it because man is powerless to free himself from this bondage. This world is temporarily ruled by the devil. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In fact, the devil is the author of sin because he was the first to sin before Adam sinned. 1 John 3, 8 says, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And Ezekiel 28, 16 says, Satan sinned and was cast. 
from the mountain of God. We do not have to look any further than COVID to see how death has grip over men. And I know that death resides and the fear of death resides among some of you ladies even today. Some of you may have just experienced the loss of a loved one and that has shaken you. You may know someone who's dying. Some of you have aging parents and it's just a matter of time until you have to say goodbye. You yourself may have a terminal diagnosis. Or you may be in your older years and you know that the days are short. Some of you fear death through miscarriage or have experienced the pain of a miscarriage. Or you may have children and you fear their death. Some of you may even fear when you travel or each time the phone rings with news of a loved one. Friend, the bondage of death, the fear of death could only be broken in one way, through the sinless death of a man. Only through death of a sinless man is the forgiveness of sin and freedom from fear. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus proclaims in Revelation 1.18, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The Puritan theologian and writer John Owen called this great achievement by Jesus on our behalf the death of death in the death of Christ. Now, the devil has not been annihilated, but his power has been made impotent. It is powerless to the children of God. So, friend, if you're in Christ, death should no longer have the fear that it once had on you. Satan is a toothless bulldog. He's a fangless serpent. He is a defeated enemy, and you can resist him, and he will flee from you, according to James 4, 7. So we've seen his preeminence through suffering, procurement of sons, his power over, sin, over Satan and sin. Finally, we see Jesus' priestly service. Verse 16 to 18, please read in your Bibles with me. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." The conjunction for is useful, again here, to show that Jesus did not come to save angels, but he specifically came to save the offspring of Abraham. 
And we know that the offspring of, Abraham, offspring of Abraham in Romans 4 are those who have put their faith in God. To help believers, Jesus had to be made like his brothers or be made human in every respect. When people saw him walking, he was an ordinary person who grew from infancy to maturity and suffered afflictions just like we do. Jesus' sinful life qualified him as the merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This means he became the atonement for sin. He paid the penalty of sin on our behalf. And with these words in verse 17, the writer in a marvelous way transitions to a great theme he has been carefully approaching and building up to. That theme is the theme of Christ as high priest, which will dominate the passages of Hebrews. This also alludes to the obsolescence of the Mosaic priesthood, which we will see in later chapters. But for now, we just remember that the one main function of the high priest was to make a sacrifice of sin for himself first and for the people with the blood of bulls and goats. Because of his once-for-all sinless sacrifice of his own blood, Jesus is now that great high priest. In his priestly service, Jesus is merciful to forgive our sins and also sympathize with our afflictions. He is faithful because he is holy and he will always do the will of God. He was faithful as a man, so you'll be faithful as a priest. He makes propitiation for the sins of the people, meaning he appeased God's wrath towards sinners by his atoning sacrifice of his body. And we have confidence that our sins can be forgiven because of his sacrifice. Because Jesus himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, this is profoundly strengthening and encouraging to us. It encourages us to stand firm because Jesus is our great helper. Romans 8 says, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us and nothing can separate us from his love. So chapter 2 ends on this great high note of the sympathetic high priest who qualified, who was qualified for his service because of suffering of death. Chapter 3 and 4 will develop even further the theme of Jesus as the faithful high priest and also Jesus, his superiority over the venerated leader Moses. Now, you will remember that at the beginning, I mentioned that Hebrews 2 elevates the superiority of Christ over angels. This passage has excellently argued that though Jesus came down to earth in the form of a man, 
the infinite breadth and depth of his work to save humanity as the sinless Savior magnificently exalts him above the angels as he is at the right hand of God, crowned with glory and honor. The objections of the Jews that they may have wondered if a man was superior to angels have been conclusively argued in this text. Jesus, friends, is far more superior than angels in all respects. Now I have to admit that this particular text that we have gone through today was deeply emotional and overwhelming to me. And this is because this passage here is the very gospel upon which I have personally laid my own anchor for my own salvation. Man has a sin problem. I have a sin problem. And you, my friend, you have a sin problem. The diagnosis of this problem is something that no doctor can ever prescribe. The solution is what is dispensed to you in this message today, that only the suffering death of Jesus can save you from your sin. Our sin was so arduous, so vile, that it demanded the blood of the incarnate Son of God. Rightly, did the theologian and preacher Jonathan Edwards say, you contributed nothing towards your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. If you are in Christ, you will say with me, praise God for this indescribable gift. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus your heart should be ignited to greater worship and devotion of Jesus who paved the way for your salvation. One man who was so ignited was John Vinson, a missionary in China. Facing death, with both hands bound behind his back, his captors pointed a gun to his head and asked him if he was afraid to die. He replied, No. If you kill me, I go straight to heaven. It was then that the bandits shot, killed, and beheaded John Vincent. Within minutes of hearing the testimony of the death of his friend, another missionary, Hamilton, wrote a poem about his friend's glorious death. The first two verses of it say, Afraid? Of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace? the strife and strain of life to seize, afraid 
of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face? To hear his welcome and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace? Afraid of that? Because of his belief in Jesus, John Vincent found victory in Jesus and he entered straight into the glory of God. Now I am aware that some of you will remain unmoved by this message. Friend, if that is you, I do you no favor by not impressing upon your heart that you reject this great salvation to your own ruin. Hebrews tells you in chapter 1031 that it is a fearful thing to land in the hands of the living God. I personally beg you, by the mercies of God, be reconciled to God. This message is just not for your knowledge. It's not just for your information. It is for the transformation of your own heart. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, the God-man who has one hand in heaven and one hand on men and is the only way, the truth, and the life. Repent and believe, my friend, because our God is a consuming fire. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the man, the only man, who can truly save you. He can do that because he has paved the way for your salvation. Today, do not reject this so great a salvation because you will receive a just retribution. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, it pleased the Father to send you down to rescue us from our sin. Thank you that you willingly and perfectly submitted to the Father's will and suffered through death to ransom our souls. Now, Jesus, I pray that this message will result in perseverance and unwavering faith for your saints. If it pleases you, my Lord, I pray that this message would also result in the salvation of those who do not know you. May your word not return void, but accomplish the purpose for which it intended. Amen.